You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We're now in travel season here at Strong Towns and travel season seems to be year round now. Actually this year it's, it's kind of has been, but fall is our typical like go, go, go kind of thing. Everybody's got conferences, everybody's got stuff going on and we get a lot of invitations. It's, it's been kind of overwhelming. In fact, I wanna say today we had a little events meeting. We have weekly and we're booked, I mean, I'm, I'm booked for the rest of the year. I know we're booked into next year. I think we're starting to look at like March and April. I don't know, it's kind of crazy. It's awesome, it's, it's fantastic, but it means that I've been really, really busy. And I, uh, I apologize, sometimes when I'm really busy, the podcast is the thing that suffers. But I did just get back from a trip. I just got back from Hawaii. I was actually in Kauai. And I was invited to speak there as part of a planning conference going on, on, on Kauai. It was fantastic. I have had the, the delight to be able to go and speak to many, many groups when they are getting together for the first time since the pandemic. And I got to tell you, looking at everybody's faces, everybody's so filled with joy. There, there's a certain sense of togetherness that comes out of these things. And one of just the privileges of my life is that over the last year, I've been able to experience that over and over and over again, people getting together in a large group for the first time. And it's absolutely beautiful. I was scheduled to go to Hawaii. At least we, we were having discussions before the pandemic started. And then the pandemic put an end to, to all of that. This was an invitation we got earlier this year. And, and I said, Let, let's please make this happen. Not only because... I've never been to Hawaii, I really wanted to go. But in my capacity at Strong Towns, I've been able to do presentations in 48 of the 50 states, the only two states I have not been to as part of Strong Towns, nor have I been to, you know, not as part of Strong Towns, is Alaska and Hawaii. And so I got to cross off one of those off the list. I have to confess on my way out that I was a little bit nervous. I've never been to Hawaii and I think for those of you that have not, you probably had similar images to me in your head, you know, of volcanic uh, rock in the middle of the ocean, you know, beautiful place, resorts, beaches. And there's a part of my brain that's like, this is so unlike central Minnesota where I'm from. What do I have to tell these people that will be of any help to them? I remember in the early days of Strong Towns, I was very confident speaking to groups here in central Minnesota, but I would get invited to northern and southern Minnesota, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, is it, is it going to be way different there? And then I remember the first time I was invited to speak in North Dakota, and I thought, oh my gosh, is anything that I'm doing here translatable to, to this place? And of course it was in a big way. In 2012 or 2013, I can't remember, it's been a long time now. I did a tour of California. We actually put out a call and wound up visiting a bunch of places in California. I read a couple of books going into there. I studied Prop 15. I tried to get up to speed on land use in California. And I thought, 
I don't know. I don't know if the strong town's message is going to even be applicable here. I, I don't know. And as soon as I got there and started sharing our story and people started to share their stories with me, it was plain and obvious that we had a lot, a lot to talk about, right? I had the same kind of apprehension as I head into Hawaii. And I want to say it was not nervousness like butterflies in the stomach, but kind of an apprehension, right? Like, I really don't know this place. And I'm kind of nervous that I'm expected to be an expert here. And I'm not, right? I'm not. When I arrived, even before I arrived, but especially when I arrived, my goodness, people treat me so well when I'm traveling, when I show up in a place. People are always just so kind to me and so generous to me. Um, this was over the top kind and generous. I, I felt so welcome. I felt so appreciated. And you see the, from the outside, the, the touristy thing where they give you the lay, the, you know, the flowers around your neck. When we got to the hotel, it's the first thing they did. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is nice, a, a little bit, a little bit cheesy or formulaic, like, okay, whatever. Um, but it's very nice, you know, and welcoming. And I kind of assumed it was a, a, a touristy kind of thing. I came to understand over the next couple of days how, how significant and important it is. And in fact, when different groups of people would share a, a, a lay with me, we had one member, uh, a beautiful woman named Mary, who has done some extraordinary work on the island of Kauai. She made one for me, special. I have it. I, I just, it's falling apart because it was actual, like real fresh flowers. It is beautiful. I wish I could preserve it forever. But it was these kind of things like over and over, just these small little acts of of kindness and, uh, and generosity that I experienced there. It was, it was very nice. I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a personal story. This <laughs> will maybe make fun of me. I don't know. But when I travel, oftentimes the place where I'm going to speak will get me a room, right? They'll reserve me a room. And, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy, but people try to be very generous to me. Not try. They, they are very generous to me. And oftentimes they'll reserve like a nice suite or like a really fancy room, something I would never book for myself, uh, certainly not on our nonprofit budget, but they'll book a, a, like a really nice room for me. And when I got to the Grand Hyatt in Kauai, where I was speaking, they had uh, booked me a very, very, very nice room. And the bell hop brought me in, said, this is your room. It's one of the nicest rooms we have. I heard the sound of waves crashing and I, I just thought, Oh, that's kind of cute. They've got one of those noise, those white noise machines that make the sound of waves crashing. I'll have to find that and shut that off because that'd be really annoying. And then I realized, and it only took me a couple seconds, but then I realized, no, 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 that's real waves. It was the most gorgeous thing. I don't think I've ever slept better than I slept those four nights with the window open a little bit, with the waves crashing against the shore, just over and over and over. What a magical place, like really, what a magical place. But I had this concern, you know, what, what do I have to offer? One of, one of the things that I was asked to do was take part in a walking tour of a nearby city. And I'm, I've already said Hawaii, I said Kauai. I'm saying these as a Minnesotan and I'm gonna apologize to anyone from these beautiful places for my butchering of your gorgeous language. I have a hard time having the words come out of my mouth in the correct way. I would listen to natives speak. 
uh, people who are from Hawaii talk about their islands and talk about their life. And I found like the language just beautiful. And I'm an engineer largely because I couldn't do foreign languages, right? Like I really struggled with it. My tongue doesn't do it. My brain doesn't do it. And I apologize because they have a beautiful way of saying Hawaii that is different than what a Minnesotan says. But please uh, forgive me. I remember I was going to give this walking tour of this smaller town and I went there to check it out ahead of time. And I thought, you know, what, what am I going to talk about here? I, I, I don't know. Like, what do they have to learn from me? As we did this walking tour and as I got to listen to them and listen to the things they were struggling with, they need strong towns. <laughs> I started to realize how badly they need a strong towns approach. And I started to feel a little bit sad and depressed amongst the beauty and amongst the kindness and amongst the generosity. I started to feel a little bit sorrowful because if there's one place in this country that should not have been screwed up by the suburban experiment, it is Hawaii. Yet Hawaii has been really screwed up by the suburban experiment, by this whole post-war uh, experiment that we've been on in building non-places. I want to talk a little bit about the suburban experiment as it applies to Hawaii. It's one of those things where for us on, you know, quote unquote, the mainland, us on the continental 48 states, or really us in North America, I'm, I'm headed to Canada this week, uh, which is also going to be fantastic. But for those of us here in North America, the uh, suburban experiment is, is what we know, Right. There's a similarity between, you know, a cornfield in Minnesota and a cotton field in Mississippi and, you know, something in Colorado on the edge of the Great Plains and a housing subdivision in Washington State. There's something very similar about those that make the kind of underlying economics clear, that make the ramifications of the development pattern clear. That even though these places are very different, I mean, if you go to Massachusetts and see the cities there, they are substantively different from the cities in Oregon, but yet you can see how they're derivations of each other. And you can recognize how after World War II, when we turned cities into these kinetic growth machines, when we poured our resources and our energy into their horizontal expansion, in this new auto-based model, when we when we reworked our core cities uh, to make them auto-oriented, auto-first, and then built these uh, extended suburbs around them in this very, very horizontal, very hyper-out, very fast replicating type of pattern, you can see how that varies a little bit from place to place, um, but how it's somewhat like coherent in terms of its rollout uh, across North America. Hawaii is just different, right? All of the dissonance of the suburban experiment is just heightened when you get to Hawaii, right? Like all the things that don't work here really don't work there. And I, th I think that is the saddest part of it all, right? That when you look, it should be a place that is so different than than what has actually been done to it. And I'm not, I'm, I'm gonna say done to it, the suburban experiment has largely been imposed on us as part of this kind of top-down set 
of policies. Now, we imposed it on ourselves. I mean, cheering uh, the whole way for the most part, you know, broadly. There were certainly dissidents from it, but they were a, a small, small vocal minority. For the most part, we have embraced this development pattern here in North America. You look at it in Hawaii and you recognize how it has been imposed on this island in a way that is just awkward, right? I think awkward is like the first word that comes to mind, but it, it gave me this sense of sorrow because everything that we talk about here, everything that we see here is just way, way worse there and way worse there in this backdrop of paradise, right? Like the fact, okay, let me put it this way. There's a wide belief, and I'm gonna guess that a vast majority of the people listening to this are going to say that suburbia is ugly. I'm, I, you, will, you will never hear me say suburbia is ugly. You might hear me say it's disorienting. You might hear me say that it lacks a sense of place. You might hear things like that, but you're never gonna hear me say it's ugly. And I'm not gonna say it's ugly because a whole bunch of people don't think that it is ugly, right? So when you get to Hawaii, especially if you're used to North America, you're not going to look at it and say, wow, that is ugly. Because it's it's not ugly. It's a it's a lesser rendition of you know pure suburban development here. I'll get into why that is, but it's not gonna strike you as being ugly, right? Like that's not the thing that's gonna hit you. But what's gonna hit you if you have a strong town's lens is just how out of place this approach is. Let me talk a little bit about the suburban experiment. And then we'll talk about it coming to Hawaii. The idea at the end of World War II that there's this notion, and I, I think it's wrong, but I get it when you, when you measure GDP in a certain way, when you measure economic success in a certain way. The idea that I think is wrong is that World War II ended the Great Depression, right? World War II ended the Great Depression, you know, like taking narcotics ends your pain problem right? Like it, the pain really doesn't go away. The underlying economic condition that created the malaise did, did not disappear. It, it was in a sense, just dissipated. It was, it was transformed. When you take millions of people and, and, and ship them off overseas to fight in a war and you take millions of other people and you, you put them to work building uh, ships and planes and munitions and, and all the things necessary to fight that war, um, you can very easily uh, juice gross domestic product, right? Like you can make a lot of economic activity happen in a short period of time. If this is our measurement of prosperity, which let's just be clear, for economists, it is. For the economics profession, this is a measurement of success. If this is your measurement of success, then sure, World War II ended the Great Depression. If your measurement of success is human prosperity, well, World War II was the, the low point, right? World War II was the most down on the scale that we've come. And even if you look at just Americans and, and take out the people who were in harm's way, the, the people who died in this war, the people who were traumatically injured, who had their lives altered forever in this war, and just look at people on the home front, you know, you're rationing gas, you're rationing butter, you're rationing uh, meat, you are sacrificing for the greater good. This is no measurement of prosperity, right? Great, GDP might be up, but prosperity, not really. So the idea after World War II was, 
if we're going to just demobilize all these troops, if we're going to bring everybody home. We're going to demobilize all these industries. We don't need to build tanks anymore. We don't need to build munitions anymore. We're not, we're not fighting a war. We're just going to go right back to 1935. We're going to go right back into depression. That's not what happened, right? What happened is we took this great innovation, the automobile, and we took the development pattern that had kind of arisen around it, you know, pioneered by places like Detroit, to deploy this to build this broad middle class. We created an, a new version of America. America, whatever version, 2.0, 3.0. Here's what's going to be a, a different relationship with the landscape, a different relationship with prosperity. We were going to get everybody eventually into their own home, their own little ownership society, their own part of Americana. We had the idea of the American dream kind of become established. Not only this idea that, you know, the next generation would be better off than the one before it, but that that better off would include a single family home with a yard and two cars and, you know, a middle-class lifestyle. You can roll your eyes at me right now. I'm not saying this as a marketing brochure. I'm kind of talking about the vibe at the time. I'm not trying to overlook the fact that this vision didn't include everybody but I've always insisted on trying to be as, as generous as we can with understanding the, in, the intentions of people of the past. And I, I do think that, you know, the hope was, okay, we'll start with the, the white middle class and, and maybe someday this will extend to everybody, right? The, the vision was everybody can work hard and get ahead. And this model of building will provide lots of opportunity for people. I think that there are legitimate economic reasons to believe in that story. Not only because we witnessed it happen for a couple decades, right? But if you look at cities, cities are cities of the pre-Great Depression era are basically the repositories of stability, right? You get the wealthy person own the stuff in the middle of town. And that was basically a, a multi-generational way to accumulate and save wealth because the, the prosperity of that community depended on the center of it, the heart of it, staying strong and resilient. The people who got there first were in the middle, uh, who had that land, experienced that wealth, and were always going to be, in a sense, better off because of it. The traditional development pattern, if we're going to critique it, lacks the, uh, let's just say, kinetic dynamism of the suburban experiment. The suburban experiment, I've always said, is a progressive experiment to overturn the chessboard, right? To 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 say we can build a better America, a more equitable America, a, a fair America, a broader middle class. Uh, we can do all these great things by flipping over the historical chessboard, get, getting rid of these bonds uh, that, that are, are holding us back and go out and build this kind of brand new thing. You got conservatives on board because you were able to harness business. You were able to harness the American work ethic. You, you can listen to the advertising campaigns of the time around the automobile, and they have both a left and a right message contained in them, right? This is a broad American experiment. It reshaped an entire continent. And for the first couple decades of it, it looked very, very successful, right? Um, we did build a middle class. We did stay out of depression. We did provide a, a lot of uh, upward mobility to people. When you get to the 1970s and, and Nixon and Khrushchev are meeting and having these debates over who has the best economic system, 
uh, Nixon can with with a straight face say, you know, look at our middle class, look at our families, look at the stuff that they have. And compare that to what you have. Your people live in squalor. Your people don't have refrigerators in their homes and TVs in their homes and, 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 and in a sense, consumer goods the way that ours do. Our economy is, is far superior. And again, if you measure success in terms of growth, that is a, a legit story you can say. Now, if you measure your success in terms of capacity or wealth or productivity or stability, uh, the suburban experiment is, is a disaster, right? Just from a very local level, we have induced cities, we have uh, enticed cities, we have, uh, we have subsidized, encouraged, and in some ways directed cities, which are this collection of us, right? It's, it's where we live. It's, it's how we do things collectively is, is a government uh, at the city level. We, we have encouraged us as communities to take on enormous levels of liability, uh, all in the name of you know, next quarter's GDP growth. It, it's an insane business model. It's one that is bankrupting us all. And it's one that you can see has actually, uh, over time, grown increasingly parasitic, right? I was out on the street today doing an interview with uh, PBS. And one of the things we were talking about along this strode was just how the multiple iterations of this place uh, became less and less entwined with local ownership to the point where every business along this one stretch of strode we were standing uh, was just a business designed to suck wealth out of the community. Places where the transactions, uh, you know, people here earn money that money gets spent at McDonald's and where do the profits from McDonald's go? They, they, they very quickly leave the community. They don't stay here and build our wealth and capacity. Uh, we have, in a sense, denuded our wealth at, at every level that matters when we're talking local you know, communities, neighborhoods, blocks, cities. Hawaii, I'm not gonna pretend that I understand what their development pattern was before World War II. I'm gonna use a word, I use this word with them and I didn't get any pushback. I'm gonna use this word not to denote any level of sophistication or any level of, I'm not trying to make any type of, of larger political point except just to talk about this in terms of a style of development. A lot of what I recognize as pre-World War II development in Hawaii I think could be categorized, at least on Kauai, could be categorized as village. Now, I hold village in high regard, right? Like uh, to me, village and town, uh, very similar in terms of uh, the unit. It's basically a localized unit. I think if you're a planner geek today, you can say mixed use neighborhood, right? A, a village is a place with a center. It's a place with development around it. Um, but it's a place that is not going to be centered around automobile travel. It's not going to be centered on getting across very quickly. There's going to be a certain life that happens at a human scale. Uh, where I would say town here in the continental U.S., I, I think town is maybe the wrong way to think of it. I feel like village is maybe a little bit more. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, huts with thatched roofs. You know, these are, are would be fully recognizable to people, but I, I think that the sense that I got was that uh, village would maybe be the, the, the appropriate word. So in this place, we import from, you know, the mainland, the suburban experiment. We, we give it to them. We bequeath it to Hawaiians. Like, hey, here, 
you are 50 estate. Here's a bunch of money to build highways. Here's a bunch of money to build sewer and water systems. Here's a bunch of money to build other infrastructure. Here's a set of model uh, zoning codes. Here's a set of model street standards. Here's uh, common law, uh, land use law. Here's all these things that you need to do to become, in a sense, like us, like, like all the success that we're having here. We gifted them this knowledge. We, we gave them this operating system. And if you look at this operating system as it's applied to this island, oh my gosh, is it bizarre, right? First of all, Hawaii, Kauai, you know, I'm standing, this is a volcano, right? You're, you're literally standing on a volcano. And I realize that it's a volcano that, you know, has not had a catastrophic eruption for a long time, but it, it's hard to stand there and not recognize that you're standing on how many miles deep of molten rock that has been built up over, you know, thousands and thousands, maybe millions of years. Like I, I, I geologically, I don't know. It is just very obvious that you're in a different place than anywhere in North America. The, the terrain kind of starts in the middle high, right? <laughs> Volcanic eruption goes down towards the ocean. So there's this natural kind of flow of things. Think stormwater runoff here for a second, right? Stormwater in most places around the U.S., I mean, it's a little bit different when you get into the mountains, but for the most part, stormwater has uh, some undulation. There's, there's some different ways of approaching it. Um, here in Hawaii, it, it, just, it, it just runs from the center out to the edge. Like that, that's what happens. That's the way this place is designed. Everything that you build on is rock. So in, in Minnesota, when we build, say, a water line, uh, we have to bury that water line eight and a half feet deep. I think if you go further south than me, you can bury it a little bit shallower. But up where I live, it's, it's eight and a half feet deep. And that's because the frost will sometimes go that deep. And you need to have the water line below the frost line so that your water line doesn't freeze, crack, break, and then you have a, a water break. So we have to bury our pipe fairly deep. I asked an engineer on Kauai, I'm like, how deep are you burying that pipe? And he's like, as shallow as possible. And that's because you're not burying pipe, right? You're, you're chiseling into rock for the most part, right? You're, you're not like going out and digging out nice uh, gravel out of the ground. You know, here in Minnesota, you can go down like a mile or two and you're just in gravel in some places. I mean, this is all like glacial outwash, so you, you have like beautiful sand mixed with rock and it comes out and you, you don't even hardly need to blend it sometimes to use it as a base for a roadway. It's just really, really great stuff. Where do you get gravel in Hawaii? Where do, where do you get it? You can't go dig it up somewhere. It doesn't exist. I never got an answer to that question. But, you know, the idea that gravel, you're either going to have to take rock and like literally grind it up to create artificially this thing that would mimic uh, what we would consider uh, a gravel sand for a base for a roadway, or that you're going to have to bring it in on some type of boat or something to, to be able to use it. What I'm getting at here is you have, from a suburban experiment standpoint, the, the most ridiculously expensive infrastructure per foot that you could possibly imagine. Whatever it would cost here to lay pipe eight and a half feet deep, it's going to cost 5X, 10X, maybe 20X that 
in a place like Kauai, even though you're, you know, you're just burying it like slightly under the ground, you can't do this easily. It's really, really, really expensive. And so, you know, part of the conundrum that we have here is that our infrastructure is really expensive. Our development pattern that results from it is very spread out and not very productive. We don't make very good use of our infrastructure. We have a lot of infrastructure that serves empty lots, parking lots, just monotonous green space between buildings, you know, need needless kind of just loss of space. We are so cavalier and wasteful in how we use our infrastructure here. That's what, that's the development pattern we sent to them and they have copied it. And so you go along and, and here's a McDonald's and then here's a Walmart and they're all spread out and you're looking and you're like, okay, this drives me insane back home because I look at it and I'm just like, you're just burning money. You're just burning resource. You're just burning capacity. And here where it's so scarce and where it's so much more expensive, it just blows my mind. It absolutely blows my mind because that lack of productivity is just magnified there, magnified many, many times over. One of the features of the suburban experiment type of development is the cookie cutter subdivision. The idea that, and, and I realize that's a derogatory way to say something. I'm not trying to say it in a derogatory way, but the idea that we can take uh, a certain minimum lot size, you've got 50 foot lots or you've got 100 foot lots and we can just stamp them out on the landscape over and over and over is what zoning was designed to do. So many people today think zoning is some like defensive thing to maintain. No, the reason we have zoning is so we can replicate this pattern over and over and over. It's like a cookbook for building suburbia. We gave them that cookbook and we said, go out on this rock this rock formed by lava that undulates all over in weird ways, that's been eroded over thousands of years in very strange ways, that has topography that is unlike any topography you're ever gonna run into in North America. Go out on this landscape and drop in uh, Euclidean type zoning. D drop in 100 foot lots. This is absolutely insane. Like it, it leads to just nightmarish types of use patterns. For those of you that have familiarity with zoning, think of the odd situations that you have from developments that were done in the 80s or maybe the 70s that were never completely built out, maybe the 90s, and someone just went in and kind of mindlessly dropped in lot lines. And then you'll look today and you'll be like, oh my gosh, half these lots are not buildable because there's wetland there. There's like steep terrain over here. The soils are bad over here. I hate to even use the word modern because I still think it's backward and antiquated, but like slightly more progressive zoning today would say, let's take the best land and cluster our homes along there and then take the substandard land and leave that aside. But we're all dealing with these kind of old subdivisions that were done before, you know, that, that more progressive kind of mindset came in, that, that more advanced kind of thinking about how we lay out lots. A lot of us are dealing with this. Okay. Take those concerns and again, magnify them by 50 times, right? Because you mindlessly put down lines on paper in places where not only is it like extremely costly to build, but it's almost impossible in some places to do. 
This is the landscape of Hawaii. And when you look at this, Euclidean zoning is like the last thing that should be applied here. The idea that, well, here we'll have R1 and here we'll have R2 and here we'll have C1. This is such an absurdity because the land doesn't lend itself to that. In this lot over here, you should probably have eight homes and you're only allowed one. In this lot over here, you should have zero homes and you're allowed one. It doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense because of the topography. It's a very different place. It's a freaking volcano that you're building on. You can't just drop, you know, square lines, you know, right angle lines on paper and drop them down uh, and say, all right, we're going to sell these off to speculators and, and have them developed. It, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? On top of this, you have, you have topsoil on Hawaii that, and this is not going to come from things they told me. This is going to come from things I've, I've read in other places. But the topsoil on islands in the Pacific has been built up over long periods of time, largely seeded by volcanic activity further to what would be the West. Volcanoes near you know, Japan would erupt. Dust would float across the Pacific, land on these islands, and that would become like the basis of organic materials starting to grow, starting to flourish. And of course, once you get things kind of growing, there's a, there's a certain amount of feedback loop Part of Kauai is like a rainforest. I think it gets like over 60 inches of rain a year. The other part is more, I don't want to say dry because they get like 25 inches or something like that a year, which is what we get here in Minnesota. You know, you wouldn't call Minnesota like a desert. It's certainly not. We have lots of forests here where I live, especially, but it's not like the kind of thick, deep jungle kind of forest that you find on the other part of the island. It was a, it was a thick, fully developed forest, but, but slightly different, right? But here's the amazing thing about this. Everywhere where a little bit of sand, and I won't say sand because that's not what it is, everywhere where a little bit of soil accumulates, something grows. You don't have to nudge it to grow. We see this around here where you get a little crack in the sidewalk and pretty soon things are growing up through it. And it, you know, it, it, if you don't maintain your sidewalks, it kind of takes over everything. I, imagine that, but you know, in Minnesota, we deal with that for four months out of the year. Imagine that 12 months out of the year and like continuous and like very aggressive. You basically have vegetation that is trying to, as it's trying to grow and thrive and survive, is essentially destroying everything that we would build up. The level of entropy, right? The idea that systems are constantly seeking chaos. Like if you build something, you kind of hope that you reduce the entropy down to zero so it doesn't change. But we all know that doesn't happen, right? The weather will start to wear things down. Different forces will start to work on it. If you don't maintain your house, uh, at a certain point, the roof will go bad and then rain will start to infiltrate and it'll start to fall apart and it will go. Well, again, speed all of that up right? In Hawaii, just, just take everything that you've experienced here in terms of decline and just put it on steroids because you're dealing with a tropical climate, a tropical jungle, and everything grows all the time. I, I was talking to this one engineer and he said, yeah, we plant a tree, right? Or there'll be a tree here and we'll put a pipe in the ground. And then you come back 10 years later and all this tree has grown around the pipe. 
and then stuck its roots inside of it and basically is just sucking that pipe dry. Like, you know, just, just <laughs> being this force inside this pipe. And, you know, there's, there's huge leaks then and like nothing works, but you can't really replace it because uh, this tree is wrapped around it. And it, it just because one of these things where like you're, you're constantly fighting against your surroundings. And when you use the suburban experiment, you spread stuff out over the landscape. What you've said is that like an occupying army fighting against this kind of onslaught of natural vegetation, we're just going to occupy a lot of ground and we're going to try to maintain a lot of ground. And you can just go around and see like it's, it doesn't work. It's not working. As soon as your vigilance starts to drop, nature comes back and takes over. It tries. I'm reminded of uh, Jurassic Park where like life will find a way. It, it feels a little bit like that, right? Like it's always trying to seep in and take over and essentially return that entropy, you know, just destroy what you've created and, and, and return everything back to kind of a natural state. I was reminded a couple of times uh, when I was there, especially I, I had a day where I got to hike through some of this rainforest kind of terrain. And I was reminded about some books I've read on World War II in the Pacific, and particularly when it comes to fighting in New Guinea. And these troops would go into New Guinea. When they arrived, they would have brand new uniforms, they'd have a uh, change of clothes, they'd have brand new boots. And in like two or three weeks, it would all be gone. It would all be rags. And it was just rags because like the conditions there just shredded everything. It just took everything and wore it down to the nub. This is what you're fighting in Hawaii all the time. And so you take this radically expensive development pattern, this development pattern that assumes not only a high level of affluence, but this enduring commitment to maintaining what you have. Because remember, the suburban experiment is built all at once to a finished state. There's no idea of redevelopment or change or adaptation over time. It's built all at once to a finished state. You essentially have created in this very expensive, high financial burn development pattern, the like natural conditions to destroy it and destroy it very, very quickly. Again, one of the most inhospitable places for the suburban experiment that you could possibly have. I wanna make one last point about resiliency. Resiliency was on the tips of people's tongues as we were there. There's a lot of talk about climate change and mitigation and adaptation and what we do. Rising sea levels means something different when you live in Minnesota than it does when you can hear the waves lapping against the beach, right? Like I, like I, I get that. Like I, I understand the sensitivity is, is different there. It's amazing to me because in the suburban experiment, resilience often means hardening. And if you listen to engineers, and, and it's, it's funny because you can always track the money by listening to engineers and contractors and what have you. And part of, you know, the narrative around climate change now is that, oh, all this infrastructure is, is going to be under assault and we need to do what we can to make it more resilient. And in order to make it more resilient, we need to harden it. We need to make it bigger. We need to make it deeper. We need to make it stronger. We need to be more aggressive with it because by building, you know, stuff uh, to withstand, we can make it more 
resilient. This is a mindless approach in my sense to resilience. But you can see how in Hawaii, what has been imposed on this culture in terms of the suburban experiment is this idea now that resilience is going to be achieved by, you know, building hardening stuff. And, and let me just say again, on a freaking volcano, right? You're on a volcano surrounded by ocean. And your idea here is to harden stuff, to make it more resilient, resilient from hurricanes, resilient from tsunamis, resilient from, you know, yada, yada, on and on and on. I'm going to say something. Let me tell a little story first. And then I'm going to say something. And, and I want to say this in a way that is sensitive to the people that are there and not imposing on them. But I want to raise this kind of question because I, I think it's something we need to think about. Here's the story. There's a park here in Minnesota, and I want to say it's Jay Cook Park, but I could be wrong about that. It's a park along the North Shore of Lake Superior. Um, there's a bridge that goes across this river at this park. I'm going to say Jay Cook. I think that's what it was. It's a little suspension bridge. You walk across it. It's not for automobiles. It's just for hikers. And boy, it was a while back now, maybe 15 years ago, a really bad weather event came in. There was a lot of runoff in the spring. It was like a lot of rain. The ground was still frozen. A lot of water ran off and it ran down this river and it took out this bridge. It wiped out the abutments and it wiped out this suspension bridge. The state came in and did a project to make this bridge resilient. Uh, they came in and they spent, and I don't remember the numbers. Someone can look this up and get it exactly right. But they spent many, many, many millions. The number that comes to my head is like $8 million or something like that to build this bridge. And the idea was to build this bridge so it would never fall down again, right? We can have really bad rain events. We can have lots of runoff. We can have torrents of water flowing through here. This sucker's not coming down. I looked at that and I'm like, that's the opposite of resilient to me. Resilient to me is putting up a stupid little $100,000 rope bridge that will function just the same and having it fall down once every 10 years. Who really cares, right? Go fish the rope and the wood out of the water, recycle what you can, put up a new rope bridge at $100,000 and you're good to go. Why does resilient mean hardening? Why does it mean it's got to be super thick? Why does it mean it can never fall down? That doesn't make any sense to me. What happens if a recreational bridge in a state park falls down? Do, do people die? No. Does, does someone get trapped on the other side? Highly unlikely. If they did, could we get them out? Sure. No problem. If a state park, if that little particular trail is shut down for two weeks or four weeks or heaven help us a month, you know, two months while we uh, put up another kind of, you know, little rope bridge, is that going to hurt anything? Is, is anything going to suffer from that? No. But our reaction to stress is to, you know, because we have affluence, because we have money, because we are used to throwing money at problems, our, our answer to this challenge is to go out and overbuild everything. Boy, if we can just make this really, really, really big, I was going to give a curse word there. If, if we can do this in a big way, the sucker's never going to fall down, right? That is such a kind of mindless way to think of things. It, it reminds me of 
the World War I mentality where you know the, the generals would send people over the top, uh, charge their trenches, and all of a sudden in one day, 30,000 people would die. And their answer to that was not to rethink their strategy, rethink their tactics, but the next day to send 60,000 people over and, and shoot more artillery shells in and, and, and try to you know use more planes and more bombs. And they would just wind up killing more and more people. It's like, we just have this kind of, we kind of have this stuck mentality. Take this stuck mentality now and bring it to Kauai. Bring it to the Hawaiian islands, which are not meant for this. The thing that I, was, I want to be sensitive about, again, comes back to this idea of a village. And I want you to get out of your brain the idea that I'm talking about, you know, uh, pre- modern people living in grass huts. That's not what I mean. I mean, fully modern people living in a different style and arrangement, one that would feel more like a neighborhood, more like a villagey kind of place, right? If we look at something like that and we think in terms of resilience, we can think of building huge walls around it and huge pumps and huge moats and, and, you know, shoring everything up with all kinds of concrete and, and steel and what have you. Or we can think of building things that can essentially take a punch, take a punch and in some ways be rebuilt, be reborn, be put back to the way it was. And if we look back at the way Hawaiians have lived historically, Hawaiians of the past had, you know, lived on this island for a long, long time, lived in, you know, what seems like a level of prosperity that a lot of modern Hawaiians would be envious of, right? Lived largely in village type settings. They had tsunamis, they had hurricanes, uh, they had volcanic eruptions, they had disturbances to their lives from nature, but they adapted to those, right? They were able to, in a sense, build things not to feel like they could overcome nature, but that they could essentially live in what is a rather hostile and fragile kind of place, um, live within the constructs of that. I think the big question today is, for a place like Kauai, is, is what, what now? You've got this bad playbook, this playbook that doesn't work in its kind of native place of, of continental North America. It's been transmuted to you and in the transcription to your place, it has become even more incoherent. Uh, you have in the Hawaiian islands, to me, a desperate need to get away from this development pattern. The suggestions that I have seem so underwhelming for the, for the challenge, but I, I'm, I'm going to give them anyway. And I, it goes back to this word village. I think we need to start thinking not in terms of what is the, uh, the big thing we can do? What is the big thing we can bring in? What is the big project? Uh, but what are the hundreds of little things that we can start doing? The idea that everybody should drive everywhere they go and that we need to be obsessed about accommodating motor vehicles at every point, uh, to me, it is so out of place with this place, let alone this culture, that I just, I find it dizzying. I, I really, really do. The Strongtown's four-step approach comes to mind. The idea of going out and, and looking at where people struggle 
asking yourself, what's the next smallest thing we can do to address this struggle, doing that thing, doing it right away and repeating that process over and over and over. We need to get very intimate with place. We need to, uh, as we say at Strong Town so often, lower the bar of entry. We need to actually uh, uh, allow more people to fully participate in, in building a place. And, you know, we, we really need to, I, I think, recognize that the things that sustain Hawaii and the things that will sustain Hawaii over time will come from within, not from without, right? And, and this gets me to the very last point that I, I want to make. And again, trying to be very respectful of everybody there and, and recognizing that I'm an interloper. I was there for a very short period of time. I have a certain mindset and a certain set of insights. I, I don't know everything. The people there know way more than I do. I'm, I'm trying to provide some, some maybe new ways of thinking about things. But I heard over and over and over again, and I made a point to ask and try to ask in the most neutral way possible about people's experience during the pandemic. And uniformly, uniformly, from people who worked at restaurants, from people who worked in government, from people who worked in service places, to attendants at the gas station, over and over and over again, I heard the same thing repeated. The pandemic was great. Boy, we love the pandemic. The pandemic was so nice. Everything functioned so well. And it came back to, we had no tourists. This seems so odd for us here on the mainland because quite frankly, for many of us, when we think about Hawaii and I'm sitting here talking to you about the Hawaiian islands and, and I'm going to say that I likewise am guilty of this thought too. We think of pleasant vacation place. We don't think of Hawaiians. We don't think of villages. We don't think of people living normal lives there. We think about a paradise, right? And, and to some extent, that's the image that they have cultivated too. So, you know, we can, we can blame ourselves a little bit for being myopic, but we've kind of been induced to be that way. It was remarkable to me to hear from people, often unprompted, how wonderful their lives were without tourism. I asked the group what percent of the GDP of Hawaii comes from tourism. And the question got misinterpreted and was the answer was debated over and over again. I don't have great numbers. I've got a number from Wikipedia, take it for what you want, but you know, I, I thought it was good. There was uh, arguments that like Kauai would be different than other islands and, and I, I can buy that. But overall, the Hawaiian islands the total percent of their GDP that comes from tourism, I had guesses anywhere from 60% to 80%. The answer is 20%. There's a whole heck of a lot that goes on in Hawaii that is just being Hawaii. I'm not going to suggest that Hawaii doesn't need tourism, and I'm not going to suggest that Hawaii should be done with tourism, but I'm going to say about Hawaii what I say about every tourist-centric kind of place. The more you put tourists front and center, 
the more you're going to spend and the less you're going to get in return. The more you will sacrifice and the less you will receive. The more you put your own people front and center, their experiences, their lives, their priorities, their needs, the more you focus on making their lives as incredible as possible, the more lovely you will become to people who don't live there. The, the tourist idea that we need to have, in a sense, commodity workers working at really low wages, doing mindless jobs in order to support wealthy people who come in and spread their money around is, is a business model that does not really work anywhere. I've never really seen it work anywhere. Not if by working we mean leads to overall prosperity of the people in that place. I stayed at the Grand Hyatt. The Grand Hyatt is owned by Hyatt, right? It's, it's not owned by some Hawaiians. It's not owned by people, you know, living there in the islands. It's, it's, it's not owned by different bed and breakfast things in a little village. Like n- none of that. I stayed at a place and all the money that was spent there on my behalf, certainly, you know, some of it was, was, went to wages for people working there. But the vast majority, I mean, the profit leaves the Hawaiian islands and goes to some account somewhere else. It counts as GDP, right? It counts as velocity of money. It doesn't accrue wealth there. I think Hawaii needs tourism. I'm not suggesting it does. And please, the takeaway from this should not be that Chuck thinks we should ban tours. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. But I do think that the suburban experiment is a massive failure here and the mainland US, it is an atrocious abomination. It is, it is an injustice against everybody who calls Hawaii home when applied there. And the idea that it would be done in pursuit of tourism just adds insult to offense, right? It is taking everything that's wrong with it and, and, and doubling down. Focus on your people, focus on your places. If we want to call it strong towns, do it. I would love to have strong villages in Hawaii. I I just want people to be able to live in places where they don't have to drive everywhere, where they can walk to the things they need, where they can live really high quality, prosperous lives in a low financial burn kind of way, ways that accumulate to their own capacity, their own wealth, their own prosperity. My gosh, if this could be done any place, it could be done in Hawaii. I, I, I noted a couple times, and I, I think I might have offended a couple of people, but I, I think they grasped it. In Minnesota, when you build a house, you can build a small, modest starter home. But a, even a small, modest starter home has to have a furnace, and it has to have a basement because you've got to put the foundation down a certain degree to reach stable ground below the frost. You have a, a big ante in order just to get a starter home going here. This is not to insult Hawaii. I actually think it's beautiful. But like literally in Hawaii, you can have a shack with four poles and a roof over the top and be completely comfortable for 90% of the year. And you can put sides on that and be comfortable the last 10%. You do not have to have a really high level of construction in order to live safely and prosperously in Hawaii. You, you can actually build things much cheaper in a sense than we can here. And so I think there's an opportunity here 
to refocus, to reprioritize, to reexamine, to, to, to say the suburban experiment has been a failure here. We are no longer going to be wedded to Euclidean zoning. We are no longer going to be wedded to an auto-oriented development pattern. We are going to get away from that style of development. And we are going to put our efforts and our energies into thickening up our places, into making better use of the infrastructure we have, into in, in improving uh, and making modest investments in improving our places based on where we see our friends and neighbors struggling to get by struggling to use the places as they have been built. And if we do that, I, I think tourists still want to be there. I think tourists still come. But I think you can start to carve out amidst both the beauty and uh, the just sheer ferociousness of living on a rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can start to carve out a really high quality of life for people who today are struggling to get by in a paradise. And there's nothing that would make me happier than to go back and, and to see Hawaii moving in that direction. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, you know, for all the invitations that I keep getting to come and share this message with places. It's wonderful. If you want to see where we're going to be, go to strongtowns.org forward slash events, and you'll see all the upcoming events for this fall, uh, maybe even some for next year. If you want to try to get yours scheduled, you can go on, on that page and do that as well. Thanks everybody for listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, friends. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.